Okay, hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the BSSH Sport and History podcast. I am Connor Heffernan and I'm very happy uh, to be joined today by Alexander Jackson. Alexander is the curator of the National um, Football Museum in Manchester. He's well known in BSSH circles and today we're going to be talking about his latest article in the Sport and History Journal called The Father of Football Fiction, A.S. Hardy and the Popularization of American fo- or Association Football Fiction in the Voice Stories Papers of the Amalgamated Press circa 1900 to 1939, or just The Father of Football Fiction, which I probably should have uh, stopped after that. But Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. As an opening uh, softball question, I suppose, maybe can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about the, uh, the A.S. Hardy paper that we'll be speaking on today? Yes, yeah, so thank you for having me on the uh, the show, so to speak. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah. So this paper sort of uh, has had quite a long life uh, in that it came out of uh, my PhD, which was a collaborative one, which I started with the National Football Museum back in two thousand and seven, uh, and it was also my very the basis of my very first conference paper at a BSSH uh, conference at Stirling, if I if my memory is right. Uh, and so uh, I started doing that as part of the PhD, which was looking at sort of boys' culture off the field. So through toys and games and comics, which is obviously a great sort of subject area to be looking at for your PhD. When people ask you what you're doing, it's like, oh, yeah, I sort of read comics, I play some games and I collect some uh, collectible football cards. Obviously a little bit more to it than that. Um, and so so I, I produced it. It's, it's essentially the papers like part out of a chapter of that PhD uh, which didn't get published because I managed to fortunately uh, get a, a job first on a temporary contract at the museum in 2011 and then was made permanent in 2012. And so I joined the museum to help translate some of that research into the museum uh, when it moved to Manchester from its previous Preston site. Uh, and so I've been working at the museum since then. And then when the pandemic came along, uh, I was on full-time furlough for about seven months uh, so within that, I was uh, obviously not the greatest times for everyone in very different ways. And for me, I had a, quite a lot of time. It was quite stressful, but, uh, wondering what whether I'd actually go back to my job with the, the way things were going. Uh, and so uh, I do a lot of my research tends to be in my independent time from my role at the museum. So it relates to it that I have to spend personal time doing it. Uh, and so I kind of decided that I'd been thinking about trying to get it produced uh, and written up. Uh, and so I set to it. So it was something I was probably doing around this time last year, interestingly enough. So, so yeah, it was, and it was nice because in essence, I was able to revisit it, revise it a bit, add to it. Uh, so yeah, so I'm quite pleased to have finally, after about 14 years or so, to actually get it out to a broader broader audience. So uh, yeah, goes to show. So I'm, uh, I'm a dreadful person for hating my own work when I read over it. And that's usually after about a year. Um, how did it feel going back to this after like kind of, or, you know, returning to it and immersing yourself in it after like a 14 year delay? Was it, was it still, still the best work that I'd ever been written or had, did you have to do a lot more work then to, to bring it up to new standards? It held up actually. I was quite pleased. Okay. It was sort of like, yeah, yeah, it was wasn't too bad. Uh, no one, else, crucially, no one else had come along and like you know got onto <laughs> that territory afterwards, uh, which was good. That was nice. Uh, and it was uh, yeah, it was sort of like it was good. Uh, like a core of it was really good. Held up. It, it needed just relatively sort of re-editing for purposes of a journal article, uh, and I was able just to add a bit of the time as well, just to explore one or two avenues, especially sort of a little bit, rounding off a little bit, especially on uh, Hardy's personal life, which was really good, uh, interesting. 
Yeah, and that was something I think we'll probably talk about in a moment's time, but like you really went uh, in the weeds at certain parts and got some really interesting information. I'm just talking about where you dig up who his neighbor was and why that might have been significant. I was very impressed uh, by that. (laughs) But I suppose to uh, open, um, because we've been talking about it, who was A.S. Hardy um, or Arthur Joseph uh, Stevens? Stephens? Um, yes, it's great for the uh, for the different names that it had. So it's Arthur. I had to write it down for myself to remind me. Uh, okay, there Arthur Joseph Stephens, born in 1878, uh, died in 1939, uh, and sort of self-claimed, but arguably uh, a good case for saying sort of uh, a, if not exactly the the first creator, but definitely one of the important pioneers in fictional boy stories set in association football, but actually also more broadly as a, a writer of sporting fiction four boys uh, uh, generally uh, and so he, he's not the first because there's other earlier stories in papers like the uh, the uh, uh, boys own paper which obviously very important in that period for popularizing uh, obviously a particular subject that's uh, key, you're interested in uh, muscular christianity in a sense uh, and so yes yeah, so he went on and um, he published prolifically uh, uh, there is no sort of total really for how many stories and how many words he did in his lifetime but it was pretty much probably writing consistently through from about the uh, the late 1890s into the uh, into 1930s uh, and so so yeah um so yeah so he's fascinating just in like saying the names because he was bar- born Arthur Joseph Stephens and his father was a, a, a emigrated from Germany in the 18 I think around the 1860s 70s uh, and so but later on as he as his life developed he anglicized his name and added the hardy which sounds like very sort of like you know in the sense of the muscular Christianity side it's sort of that that bit uh, and then so but it's nice he sort of kept a little nod because he was either referred to in different stories as Arthur Hardy or Arthur A.S. Hardy so with the S he obviously made that allusion to the Stephens part of his surname uh, but it's quite interesting yeah so he sort of anglicised himself and the picture that sort of emerged from the research was of someone who was sort of seen as a very very British very English figure and someone who's just sort of a part of that sort of almost uh, uh, adult boy, so to speak, who's just got this huge interest in sport and has managed to find a way to make it pay, so to speak, by being a writer after after an early career as a as an actor as well, which is quite fun, quite fascinating. Yeah, and it was it was fascinating to see that he has this kind of musical career up until is it his mid to late twenties, and then he transitions into writing. Kind of mm. like prolific isn't even the word. I mean, at one point. I think you say he'd do like single issue stories that are about 1,500 to 2,000 words plus serialized stories. And you're saying, you know, 5,000 words or more a week mightn't have been untypical. When I was doing my PhD, 500 words a week, that was like, you know, I was on course to be fantastic. So like the, the amount of copy these people would write uh, mm. is, jaw, is jaw dropping even today. So exactly. How, how does he make the jump from like musical to um, uh, fiction, fiction writing? Um because you, you kind of speculate on that a little bit within the article as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those ones where it kind of seems like a bit sort of, as with many things in life, uh, potentially serendipity and timing and location. Uh, the fact that the particular area that he's grown up in, uh, or rather where he's living in London, uh, and the contacts he's made uh, are with people who are from that publishing industry, journalists. And that's the kind of period where obviously sort of a, a journalist might do quite a lot of copy across various different things. Uh, and so he's got neighbours who work for some of the newspapers for some of the other newspapers and papers owned by the Amalgamated Press, which is uh, Alfred Harmsworth, later Lord Northcliffe's hugely successful publishing venture. 
so alongside things like the Daily Mail in that era, he's also publishing lots of this uh, uh, it's sort of what is seen as improving voice literature. It's not the sort of, uh, it's designed to be a, a, a counterpoint to some of the more bloodthirsty material that emerged in the 19th century, uh, the Penny Dreadfuls uh, particularly. And so, and so he's sort of, and again, his timing is sort of someone who grew up as football's emerging as a mass popular entertainment, uh, but it's something he encounters and he talks about in his autobiographical material about becoming aware of interest in football as an adult, which is quite interesting because we're so used to, I think most people are interested in sport, the main sports perhaps they're interested in, they've probably, probably encountered as children because we're just so used to it being around us in so many different ways. And so it's quite fascinating to imagine him as like a 20-something-year-old actor, as he says, going to a, a big championship game between Aston Villa and Liverpool and just being swept up in the whole atmosphere, the crowd, the events and stuff. And then also, from his perspective, it's quite interesting that he's there again, like thinking like, ah, right, yeah, this is like, you know, this is something I can use as like inspiration and source material. Uh, and I think that was one of the, as much, it's one of those things, it's difficult I sort of perhaps in the article talk a lot about the realism side. It, it should be should be sort of uh, acknowledged that there is a lot of fantasy and in sense of sort of the unrealistic things that happen in all these stories. So all the classic plots of like, you know, sort of lost, lost uncles, relatives, uh, people who are, seem to be working class, but actually have a really rich uncle so they can inherit the factory at the end of the, the, the story, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and you know all various different things like that but then within that a lot of realistic detail that he sort of picks up throughout the rest of his life uh, to help influence his stories uh, yeah so something and this is showing my taste in uh, in media something that continually came back to me was just uh, with some of the plots in your time it was kind of dream team uh the, the wonderful sky one show uh from the mid 90s early 90s and even in this like there are these fantastical things you say about the working class back who actually had a rich uncle who left him something and is swindled out of his fortune mm -hmm. or the um, bookies or the, you know, the, the bookmakers coming along and offering temptation to the players to maybe fix the games. What was the most fantastical, was there a plot device that he continually returned to or does his writing evolve as the years go by? Because when you marry the realism with the fancy as you do, you mm. show how he's responding to and then also mm. adding this creativity creativity pardon me to what's happening in the broader footballing mm. landscape so is he evolving as it goes on or is he does he have his like five things you know bookies swindling people you know uh untoward referees H how does his writing change or does it change i suppose it's one of those ones actually i it's with an article of this sort of like size i, I did a fair amount of reading but it, to be honest it's like given how much he wrote i probably yeah. there's so much of it, it, it there really is like further work if you want to do really detailed analysis and there's obviously i focused on just him as one writer there mm -hmm. he was obviously the thing to really emphasize is that very quickly other writers were imitating him he was part of a stable of writers so to speak at the amalgamated press and so there's a lovely picture of him alongside about 40 other ones and it's the men who made the amalgamated press because obviously it's men at that time yeah. in that very sort of victorian period kind of thing unless we discover there were uh, uh, there were some writers where actually that's uh, there were women writing under male pseudonyms which would be fascinating if there were any in that because obviously not unknown in the rest mm -hmm. of publishing um so uh, uh, classic classic and de de distracting myself slightly um, no, no distracting yourself with a very interesting <laughs> observation yeah. Uh, but in yeah, so in terms of the the sort of it, it's kind of 
in the sense of the plots, they're obviously always going to turn out well. The, mm. the good will be rewarded in that sense. The bad will be punished. Uh, there are moral stories to be learned sometimes. So, and that's the interesting one is, you, yeah, you do see it in some of the stories. Some are relatively sort of straightforward and that the good are good at the start and they are good at the end. And it's just, you know, waiting for the bad people to be caught out. But then there was a, a very fascinating one, which again, I sort of didn't really go into too much detail, but in the 20, by, by the late 1940, by about pre-First World War, one or two more female characters are starting to emerge. And so you have romantic interest. Uh, and then Dave, my supervisor, Dave Russell, who covered it in, uh, covered a little bit of this in Football the English, pointed out the interwar period that the romantic interest uh, appears a lot more. And it is interesting because arguably he's sort of perhaps his stories are reflecting the fact that perhaps his readers might be staying with him and then getting older. So if they've encountered them as a, a teenager before the war, they might be then older. Alternatively, he's just trying to like change his writing a bit. So there's a wonderful one called um, The Flapper's Hero, I think it's called. Uh, uh, and so it's really interesting because that's a moral tale because arguably the person who's the hero at the beginning is a right chump because he's like, he basically, he has a nice steady girlfriend. But then he turns up to train, it starts with the story, he turns up to training and he's driven in by this like, doesn't drive himself in, he's driven in by this really attractive movie star that he's hanging, started hanging around with, who plays the vamp roles in the, it's, it's quite explicit, it's like, you know, she's a vamp star. Yeah. So it's very interesting for sort of getting that sort of, there's that sort of sexual element to it. And so basically, he sort of like, I don't know what the exact terminology these days, because I'm not with the kids in that way, but he basically bins off his previous girlfriend to hang around with like the uh, the movie star but then he learns some lessons along the way and he like you know there's a bit where he like realizes that the new girlfriend is not right for him so now he's got to like go into proper training focus on being a proper footballer because his form's dropped off gets back together with the, the former girlfriend uh, but it's kind of like <laughs> it's sort of one of those ones it's like it's interesting because it it is a more nuanced slightly more nuanced sort mm. of story and so again with those ones it'd be lovely to sort of find if that's just one example that just stood out to me because it had a very striking cover uh, or whether it's part of other stories where uh, like for example female characters had uh, more, uh, had a role in the stories um, I, I, think I, said, I think I've seen that TV movie uh, the version of that I feel, I feel like that trope has been used kind of ad nauseum uh, in the intervening period but it, it, it leads in quite nicely like they are the the topics that you touch on in sport and history article like it is quite moralistic um mm. with it like a small m and especially around kind of codes of masculinity is something that re returns again and again and again in these stories and this slight evolution where there's like a, a stoical element but violent and violence is to be abhorred unless violence is absolutely necessary and it's very interesting looking at that in the context of say the pre-great war or even just after the great war period so i'm wondering can you expand maybe a little bit on some of the the masculine codes or the masculine stories uh, or traits that as hardy injects into his stories yes yeah, so they sort of like it they are in the sort of semi-instructional stories in that sense that they are trying to propagate a certain idea of ma appropriate masculine behavior and so sometimes the character is that absolutely embodied and to an extent doesn't don't go on a journey of self-discovery they are just they are just great from the start and it's just about showing how they react the right way in different circumstances to all these different obstacles without necessarily like losing their temper unless it's it's, it's it's the kind of like a, a a true man sort of doesn't is not aggressive doesn't isn't violent isn't a bully and obviously but encounters lots of men who are bullies who are violent and aggressive in which case violence as we're taught to that is perfectly acceptable because again 
a true man should be capable of sort of those kind of things. And so it's that kind of sort of delicate balancing line of sort of football as a game is seen as where you can exhibit manly strength and aggressiveness and also self-control. So it's interesting when they sort of combine that with elsewhere in the, the magazine's portrayals and depictions of real professional footballers. They'll pick out a player like uh, Robert Crompton, the England captain, and talk about how self-possessed he is, how much self-control, uh, or attentively like an attacking player like Harold Fleming and talk about how he doesn't respond to like players like um, hacking him down and fouls. Uh, so yeah, it's quite interesting because it's always sort of like standing on the edge a little bit in different ways and uh, sort of uh, an interest. Yeah, in some of the stories, obviously some of the players do give a what's that the the phrase from uh, uh, from trying to think now from one TV credit Blackadder, like a damn good thrashing kind of kind of thing. <laughs> like if needs be, like a, a player can deal this out to someone else, and that that's that's fine, which is mm. interesting. Yeah, and there's actually there's a wonderful illustration um, in it, of, and I think you have the title of uh, self defense as appropriate masculine behavior and he gives the um the real world example of um i can't remember his first name buckley who went oh yeah 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 um what's it was a major frank major buckley Buckley. yeah that's it yeah the great one yeah he's quite explicit he's being fouled and tells the guy don't do it again oh i'll smash you in the face the guy does it again he smashes in the face (laughs) fair warning i think that's the answer i mean that's the thing um, I, I was upset though when you mentioned Buckley and yeah, this is you know how it was kind of serialized then. It, it didn't get a chance to talk about the monkey gland controversy uh, yeah. at Wolves. I was really interested in how Hardy would have uh, dealt with you know pre-modern doping uh, using. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because he does pick on various different trends and things that come through in the game. So it would be fascinating to try and do some more because I think I think that sadly would have been sort of the that would have been the. Th- 30s, 30s yeah, yeah middle 30s by which hardy was probably writing less at that time possibly less explicitly about football and drawing upon it but uh, but some of the level of detail that he does draw upon different things in terms of his early stories is that if you didn't have for example contemporary newspapers you could use some of these stories to glean actual sort of detail of things like going to which music halls they went to after cup finals to celebrate uh, special training special training does feature as a, a place as a place for where football teams go in the 1900s both fictional and real teams so that's the, the trip to the seaside partly to get the players some fresh air partly to get them away from temptations like booze uh, people hassling them for tickets and things like that um so yeah, so yeah, I think he ba- does base a short story in special training. It's not a fantastic one. I think it's an early one for a possible romantic uh, subplot to it all, uh, which is interesting. Uh, I'd have to do that. That's the thing. It's like each one can be taken and analysed in its own terms. Uh, and I think, as I say at the end of the article, this is all just the football stuff there. I came across a really fascinating one, uh, a cricket-related story that figured a, 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 you have to feel my pronunciation, not the best, uh, Ranjitstan, the, the famous Indian yeah, uh, yeah. princely cricketer. And so there's an entire story set around 50-50, like the two main characters are a British uh, white middle, uh, middle-class character and an Indian prince who's growing up playing cricket in a public school, but then is also being pursued by... Uh, duplicitous if I like assassins who have been sent from India by his like you know sort of uh, brother who's trying to bump him off uh, for the for the title of the uh, of the of their of of their of their ancestral uh, area in India that they rule and so it's an absolutely fascinating story that I sort of came across briefly uh, and then didn't because it was cricket couldn't quite get into but Mm. just yeah amazing what's out there. Well it's incredible and and again returning to the article something that you do really well is showing how you know this 
even looking at it in isolation, the boys around stories, how it's just drawing on other elements of fiction. And then it's also blurring the line between what are the major concerns in football during that time. Like you have professionalism, amateurism, we've already talked about gambling. We've talked about like changing player attitudes, but even from a fiction point of view, I know one of the you kind of brief mentions is given to the fact that there is this kind of odd overlapping of like detective stories with soccer stories. And there's something called like the football detective, which sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, so it is interesting to see how immersed everything is. Was that a surprise when you were doing the research or had you expected it to be this kind of uh, tightly knit with other elements of British popular culture? I think it was less, that was less surprising, if only because that those other areas were the ones that other pre, previous researchers had covered quite a lot. So I think in terms of the academic literature, when I came to it in 2007, there'd been a lot obviously about the whole sort of genre of boys literature as a whole. So I was very much sort of looking for a particular aspect of it. Uh, but sport, surprisingly, hadn't been covered in masses of detail. Uh, but it's obviously a huge field with a huge amount, so that's quite understandable. Uh, and so obviously things like detective stories, uh, the schoolboy stories, because obviously things like, um, uh, again, I'm bad with names, but like Billy Bunter uh, mm. and the, those kind of ones, because especially because they had that big, larger cult following, shall we say. And obviously because schoolboy stories existed as a long, you know, existed as a big, important genre as well. Uh, but yes, yeah, so it was fascinating just to see though how that sort of, so some writers are almost like going like, right, it, like the new craze is football. How do I adapt my existing storytelling technique for detective stories or schoolboy stories to football? Uh, and similarly, A.S. Hardy at different times is like, right, I need a new subject area, subject matter place for it. So I'll do a, a schoolboy story or football school football story. Uh, and so some of those have relatively less, some of those kind of things probably have less connections to the wider outside world but again it's that it's that detailed reading because it's sort of like once you get into it uh, I think there was like one football story I read and it was talking quite explicitly a little bit about how there's sort of like a an Everton the Everton Liverpool breakaway in the uh, uh, split rather between the directors that led to those two uh, led to uh, Everton Liverpool being separate organizations uh, and so it would be really fascinating again if you could do more of the detail of finding when the serialized weekly ones are and then pinning them into these source material stories and actually saying you know give or take the four month writing process you must have seen this two months before and then he's put it in because the most the most where i got into that kind of level of detail when i was been doing some recent over the last few years research around football in the first world war and that was fascinating because you could really sort of with that you could see not just his stories but everyone else is like the time lag of like war like they've got them August material written in July, so that's ready. Oh no, a war's come along. So, but all of August is not to do with the war unless they can get some really quick turnaround. But then by the later part of the year, you are starting to see more and more of these explicit stories about the war and then specifically about football as the football controversy over the professional season uh, continuing sort of uh, uh, develops. And so, so yeah, it's fascinating because you must have been sort of almost like sort of sitting down and thinking like, you know, what do I do? Yeah, how do I take this and then scribbling down ideas, I imagine. So it's fascinating. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, so you mentioned the Great War, and I think you talk about um, Boys Realm lasts until about 1916, and then it's shut temporarily for paper rationing, and then it comes back out, um, I think, just after the Great War. Is that right? Yeah. So how, how does it change over the course of the Great War? Like, the only uh, temple I have is Health and Strength magazine, which is a weightlifting magazine. And in 1916, it's telling people how to get around the rationing and how to you know, continue to train and 
how um yeah, no it's it's very much um not anti-war per se but mm. almost like the war is an inconvenience to one's mm. weightlifting activities and then it goes away and it comes back in 1919 and it's very you know we won the war and you know british masculinity at its apex um does the boys ram change significantly especially i'm wondering that 1915 1916 period mm. where like the football is kind of dropping away it's interesting because you've got because uh, Hardy writes for across several papers for the amalgamated, amalgamated press. So he also writes for the um, uh, the boy. I think it's the Boys Herald. Uh, that's the other main one. There's several, and then they sort of slimmed them down in the late 1900s. Uh, and so what's interesting is the I think it's the Herald. Um, that's the paper that has sort of like general boy stories papers. Uh, and so prior to the war, it had been like pretty much on trend was with some of the other boy story papers in terms of having invasion literature so they move seamlessly from uh, fictional 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 german invasion of like ireland and britain in like sort of july, june and july of 1914 to like new updated based on current like sort of like you know authentic fictional stories and then in that one that the editor did go like you know we have been shown to be justified like we've been pointing out the german menace for years and now it's all come true and like at least we were telling you about it and preparing you with these like obviously stories uh, but the boys realm editor is then like the opposites not the opposite side but saying essentially uh, given that there's so much war and bloodshed and talk of it out there we would like the paper to be potentially a refuge from it and we would like it to be you know different a space where we can also still have like business as normal as the prime minister's asked for um which is interesting because uh, so but they do introduce more war material as they go on through 1914 uh, and so they have some very quite bloodthirsty stuff generally not done by hardy uh, and then that seems to drop away in about 15 16 i think they sort of decided that we've gone through the trying to get a bit of the extra war craze uh, uh, publishing money to be got from interest in it and now actually people want uh, a break from it and you actually get some readers writing in to say like oh my mum uh, doesn't like me reading the other one because it's too bloodthirsty and she thinks uh, you know it's inappropriate which is just goes to show there's there all these nuances that as opposed to obviously the bigger pic the very broad stereotypes of public reactions to 19 August which a lot of historians and a lot of obviously work to try and get through those nuances like the sports papers are part of that uh, and so Hardy produces his first sort of war-related ones towards about the start of January 1915, uh, and then through the sum through the summer and autumn produces a big, big one, the one see big long serialized story, which is uh, the Fighting Footballers, which is a fictionalized version of um, a footballers' battalion uh, being created in training and then going to the Western Front, with also lovely uh, plots involving German spies back at home, because obviously you've got to have some of the key elements of that, that war literature. I'm glad they're able to get so much in. Um, and actually, so on um, readers' responses, I I'm not sure if this is a, a mean question or, or a tricky one. I'm wondering, did you, how much of a sense were you able to get of the actual readership? Because in the article, you point out, which again, I'm very uh, new to this area, you know, that although it's kind of aimed at adolescents, like the actual audience itself could have been men into their kind of early to mid twenties. At one point, I think in the post-war period, I can't remember the the paper, but it says we're open to all sexes and lovers of the game. So the actual audience itself, is it possible to talk in very broad strokes about them and how it's possible to access them? Is that through letters to the editor sort of thing or? 
Yeah, so uh, some of the pre-existing literature had done quite a bit of work around this, sort of trying to work it out and also linking to the broader sort of reading patterns of uh, children and young adults, uh, which is interesting because there is also, I used a little bit of later research from the 60s and 70s, sort of looking at sort of um, how um, children were surveyed over what they wanted to read in terms of fictional or fiction or fact uh, and as kids get older want more have them separated out less happy having the two alongside as they were in the boys realm um but it's it sort of it's the, in terms of price the pricing is one key thing which tells you that it's sort of like you have to have a little bit of disposable income uh, so it kind of is essentially for the sort of skilled probably children from skilled working class uh, backgrounds or middle class backgrounds um, uh, at the same time, there's also shared readership patterns, which are really important for material getting around. So that increases the accessibility to a degree. Uh, and then, as you say, yeah, readers' letters are a guide, obviously selected by the editor with to a view to supporting various different things. But, but interesting enough, at different times, giving very useful little snippets. So like, um, uh, like letters from female readers, from girl readers, which were really interesting. Uh, so there's definite evidence of the 1900s of of, uh, of young girls reading football stories and being really interested in them and writing for more. So kind of, you know, that, that's very useful. Uh, and then the wider research again, picked up on the fact that a lot of, cause it's relatively sort of rapid response in, in terms of the period, in terms of writing your stories to fit your audience's demands because otherwise they won't buy the paper and trying to fit with that. Uh, so they do talk a lot about responding to football and the fact that Hardy, when he first wrote a story in 1905, it was hugely successful. It was just a one-off and they commissioned to do it more clearly. Uh, and then again, just took off and you can see that across some of the newspapers and the other writers switching. So, so clearly that they are sensitive to that reading demand and getting letters that we may not see, but were definitely influencing sort of editorial and writers' decisions. Uh, and then as you say, sort of there's some pictures of, uh, in some of them showing readers of all ages of like, it's the classic sort of like game suitable for boys, like six to 60 kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and, and during the First World War, there are letters from the front from guys who are having it read, you know, sent out to them. Who they might be still in the early twenties, but it's still part of their like reading literature and stuff. Yeah. So oh. it's yeah. So yeah, it's fascinating to think some of those things were sent out like being read, like you know, in the trenches. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I suppose still tying in with the readership experience, how um, important were illustrations in these stories? Because you have some really wonderful illustrations yeah. um, in the in the article itself and I, I keep getting drawn to the one about appropriate masculine behavior which shows kind of two players doing fisticuffs and one of them coming in with a right hook um so are illustrations a big part of these as well and are they you know and typical as hardy story is that one illustration or is it kind of the little box illustrations throughout what you get is uh, the the big draw is the cover uh, and so that will move between the various different stories in the paper there's usually about three or four serialized stories running each week alongside probably about say maybe one or two um uh complete stories so like a 1500 uh 2000 word one and so each article the short complete ones will always have like a cover picture but it's just like one page so one cover picture within that uh, mm. the, there's the overall front cover sorry as well and then the illustrate the serialized stories tend to have about two to three images per one but less towards the end as it's sort of winding down a little bit uh, but I have done sort of a, a presentation once uh, on the footballers, uh, the fighting footballers one, using the, the images from that. You can almost do that. That's the mini sort of synopsis of the, the story through the images. You can do a rough story with some of these. Uh, and they are great for giving, again, like those little snapshots of 
interesting to see what the artist was picking out because obviously they're getting the text then deciding what to do but some of that actually again from a historical point of view some are really there's some loving detail i've got a great one that i used in my phd and it shows uh, fans packing onto a tram going to a football match so as far as i'm aware we have very few if no photographs of fans specifically on a tram traveling to a football match but that illustration is great because it shows everyone really ramming on as you can imagine uh, well from pre-pandemic days of uh, public transport <laughs> being rammed like that uh, and so and so there's other ones there's like uh, there's one like a fan selling the um the collectible cards they used to sell the funeral and mascot favor uh, sorry the favor cards they used to sell before games so again that's another aspect to it is like if the British Library ever digitised any of these. As for sporting historians, we would have an amazing, amazing uh, resource there. It's probably something almost to uh, drop the line and say, like, you've got these, they are absolutely brilliant. There's so much more to be got out of them. And if you digitise them, then they'll be of real interest. And also you get some great pictures out of them, which will make them that more better from the publicity side, I should imagine. There you go. And for people like me who look at the pictures first and the story second, yeah. I mean, it'd be a great boon. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one of the... Um, things i think comes up quite well is you are very generous in leaving breadcrumbs uh for historians for you know there's more to be done here there's more to be done there which uh when i was doing my phd jesus that was just always amazing when when someone said you know there's more to be done on that's where i latched on and tried to prove the worth of my study um something that you speculated on that kind of got stuck in my head is something fascinating is the kind of feedback loop between the fa cup and these stories as well, because I think the the cup competitions seem to be the, the like they would garner more attention and focus <laughs> than say the leagues themselves. So maybe could you speculate a little bit on how the stories interacted with the cup and kind of brought that you know self fulfilling prophecy of the magic of the cup uh, into fruition? Yeah, it, well, you can imagine from a sort of a storytelling point of view, the cup's brilliant because it, it works in narrative terms. You go through several, you know, you overcome your tasks, your different challenges, uh, and then you reach this big pinnacle point at the end and it's a big event and then it, and it's great and it has this very clear outcome, whereas leagues are much more complicated affairs. It's not to say they didn't do lots of stories around, such around leagues or teams fighting sort of different obstacles in different ways, whether it be like relegation or survival or promotion. Uh, but yeah, no, it's because uh, Hardy started his first story around the FA Cup in 1905, and then soon the FA Cup, the first round became like a, the time for a big bumper FA, uh, big football edition, uh, and it's sort of a, a, a sort of a topic he routine to a number of times in his career, uh, and it's sort of I'm trying to I was going to say, uh, and you sort of see that into the 20s as well uh, when it's moved to Wembley, and again that gives it another big focus of an like a place to go to, as well. Uh, and it's all just part part of that wider popularisation of the the importance of the cup in British in English well actually British as well popular sporting culture uh, and it's yeah and again that would be a whole you could do a whole sub sort of uh, like analysis article on just those kind of stories to see where we go I bought one I'm very sad I bought uh, a one off eBay uh, an edition and so it was nearly January from like 1920s and I think he was running a bit short of story for inspiration but it was sort of like what was it it was uh, it was almost Star Wars-esque I think it was like Catcher the Day was the or Catcher the, the Cup or something with the title and so it's about a team that's a team from a fishing village who are like trying to get through the early rounds of the FA Cup so again he did a lot of that contributing to the the idea of the magic of the cup lying not just in the final itself but of all those little stories along the way of smaller teams having their moments in the sunshine and and the classic for him 
think very British uh, sort of British thing is sort of the the underdog, that that value of the underdog and their sporting journey. One of my one of my favourite ones to uh, briefly go on on this one is um, uh, I came across it a while back and it's um, sort of from about 1910 and it's it's brilliant for sort of all your stereotypes of sort of uh, sort of sort of old football in that sense because it's set in this sort of uh, this posh first division club i've had their their, their list their, i think they're waiting for the it's it's brilliant because it's over it's time so obviously they can't listen they're not listening to radio because it hasn't been invented in that sense so they're waiting and the news comes through from the newspaper sellers and it's like latest you know the cup draws here and so they find out and it's like oh no we're playing this like who are this team and i don't recognize them it's like like Warburton Wanderers or something like that kind of like never heard of them and so and so they go down and it's this really proper working class works team next to the factory the grounds nothing much to look at that kind of stuff and the posh team are sort of like professional team to come down uh, and they're all sort of like oh this is it this is yeah this is yeah it's a bit different from where we normally play uh, and they get knocked out where um it's sort of a very tense game and uh, the ball gets knocked in from a corner across and it lands on the top of the crossbar. One of the opposition home centre forwards cheekily just pulls down the crossbar, the ball drops down and one of them pops it in. <laughs> so it's sort of this like magic of the cup kind of story. Magic of the cup slash sort of hand of God moment uh, yeah. for, the, for the other team. Um, yeah. So uh, as we start to wind down, I suppose I have two questions. Um, one what what should I have asked, um, or what 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 have I missed, um, if anything? And feel free to say I'm a wonderful interviewer. Um, you don't need to lie. But was there anything that I, I should have asked you about this piece, or anything that was particularly important that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Well, the only thing that would take it to the next level would, uh, I suppose, would be uh, one of the things you were, we were talking about. Obviously, those those breadcrumbs and those other areas is the, I think. Uh, especially in the context of, of the last year, year or so, I think there's also a lot of potentially really interesting material around uh, race and, and empire. Uh, and I think back in the day, probably about a decade or so, I think like another BSS conference, I was talking to uh, Jeffrey Levitt about this because he uh, he'd just done some talks back then about some really interesting. It was covering the tours of different uh, teams from parts of the empires of different European countries back to Europe. Uh, and one of the things that emerges in some of Hardy's stories, but also other people, uh, are there are stories to do with those connections between uh, empire uh, and colonies. Uh, and some of them are, and it's the, again, with the really detailed digging, trying to link them into what were the real life things happening? What were the potential inspiration? Because there's ones to do with like, from the 1900s, there's ones to do with teams touring from Canada, which are really interesting. Uh, and what's quite interesting with some of them is that the teams are often predominantly often like say white uh, colonial players who are coming back to the motherland so to speak but often sometimes the teams also do include uh, players whether they're Indian or black African uh, and so they are that potential insight into how race uh, and empire were discussed and depicted uh, in in very different ways both uh, nuanced and non-nuanced as well with some of the depictions uh, and I think I mentioned obviously before that the cricketing one I think again I think it was one of those things that sort of back about 10 years ago when you were sort of able to daydream a little bit in the pub, we were going like, yeah, there's, there's definitely potentially like a, an edited book or like an illustrated one there somewhere. And obviously people's careers don't quite take you because uh, Luke, Luke Harris as well, uh, who's another person who's re- researched this, was looking at the Olympic stories from, from 1908. And there's just, yeah, there's literally just so much more that we could get our teeth into or, or future historians can get into, so... So yeah, that's the that's the only other bit I'd flag up for people is like yeah, 
I basically we just need to get together and get the BS, uh, get the British Library to digitise them for all of us, and then we can research on the comfort of our homes. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for laziness, um, yeah. and you, you you've taken over uh, much better than I have. By my fi- final question is what's next or looking towards the future. Um, <laughs> will you continue kind of looking at Hardy, or is there a new research project? Um, that eventually, when you have free time, which I know is a luxury, uh, you, you'll dedicate yourself to. I think what I'll probably try and do is do a little bit more around the the first. Some of the first World War stuff uh, is featuring in a book I've coming out got coming out hopefully spring of next year, uh, which is called uh, Football's Great War, uh, Football Association Football on the Home Front uh, in England. Uh, so some of that's feeding into it, but I'm only using in some ways a small fraction of that. So. If I again had the time, that I think that there's a whole specialist article on that that would be quite interesting. Um, and then beyond that, yes, I don't think sadly I've got the, the time to get in there. It's probably because I just sort of, uh, sort of uh, the, the, as I'm sure you appreciate, with digitised newspaper sources and other these days, you you potentially discover a new research project uh, article every day, and it's it's hard not to get lost in the thrill of research and actually find time for the writing up as well. Um, so I'll th- I'm probably best off staying away for a little bit just to <laughs> keep myself focused on other things, lest I like decide that, you know, 1920s cricket is something I want to explore more, which is probably a bad idea. Yeah, I actually have to take uh, take complaint with you because on finishing your article a couple of weeks ago, I, I went down a deep dive of Dream Team scripts, um, which hasn't been great uh, for my personal health or my relationships with others. But there's a lot, lot, lot to be said for those random rabbit holes. Um, so I will finish up. Um, I'll just say for people who want to know more about the upcoming book or the article, I'll put a description in um, for the show itself. If you want to tell people maybe a rough guess of when the book will be out and who, who's going to publish it. Um, oh, yes. Feel sorry. Free to plug. Yeah, uh, spring uh, spring of next year. So it's still a little way to go. So we're in the sort of the, the first proof uh, draft uh, proof. Uh, stage uh, and that's with uh, Pen and Sword Publishing so it will be available in bookshops uh, which will be nice it's not an ac- so it's not academic publishing in that sense so so hopefully it should be getting out there a little bit so I will probably be uh, trying to promote that more later in the year. So, so people will actually be able to read it ra- rather than being forced to read it. <laughs> yeah unless obviously if anyone wants to put it on in their uh, any of their university reading courses that's obviously fantastic news and I would obviously like deeply encourage that. <laughs> plug it anywhere and everywhere um so on that note alexander thank you so much um again just for people uh to have a read of it themselves the article and i'm scrolling up to the top of it where i have all my notes at the bottom of it which is very clever the father of football fiction has just been published uh, in sport and history and you'll see a lot more about alexander's work kind of on his twitter page on the national football museum page and then we will also have the lovely book uh, to look forward to as well so i will give you the final words i'll say thank you again and uh, we hope to see you in a pub or conference uh, in person very soon very soon cheers and thanks for having me uh, on the on the show thanks so much <laughs>